Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 188, Productive Playtesting. Presented by Isaac Shalev, Gil Hova, and Jennifer Graham Mock. Hi everyone, we're going to talk about productive playtesting. If you were not expecting uh, a panel about uh, productive playtesting, then uh, this is your opportunity to find the panel you are looking for. Uh, or you can stick around and find out all about playtesting from three people who uh, know what they're, well at least two people know what they're doing and one person who uh, hopefully does. Uh, so <laughs> let's talk, of, let's first introduce ourselves. Uh, let's start with Isaac over here, because he, he's on my left. Sounds good. My name is Isaac Shalev. I will mostly be talking about unproductive playtesting. <laughs> Hopefully how to avoid it, but not necessarily. Um, I'm the designer of a handful of games, most recently Show and Tile uh, and Saikatsu. I, po- I podcast for Onboard Games, and I'm on Twitter as Kind Fortress. I hope you'll follow me and listen to me and talk to me in all of those locations. And of course, you can certainly playtest my games here. Uh, Isaac Shalev, thank you, Gil. All right, and Jennifer? Uh, I am Jennifer Graham-Mack. I work for Keymaster Games in marketing. I also run a website called Play Satellites, and before that I owned a board game store and I do design on the side. Excellent. My name is Gil Hova. I run Formal Ferret Games. Uh, I publish my own designs, Uh, so my uh, best known game is probably The Networks, Uh, but I also design a game called Wordsy and another one called Bad Medicine and a few others. Um, I also run the NYC playtest group, so uh, we used to playtest every month, uh, now we playtest every week. Actually, then we went to every week and now we're doing twice a week, uh, so that's very exciting. Um, and I am co-host of the podcast Ludology, um, and my, <coughs> I, until recently... My favorite podcast. Thank I'm you. Just Second favorite, favorite mine. Favorite. <laughs> 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 and um, I, until recently I was co-host of Breaking Into Board Games, uh, and recently sadly stepped down from that because of the usual lack of time. So I just want to jump on one more thing, which is um, if any of you are in Connecticut or local uh, in Westchester or so on, look out for PAC, the Playtesters Alliance of Connecticut, which uh, I help run. Uh, It's a Facebook group, and if you're interested in playtesting, we are playtesting at least once a week and in multiple locations throughout the state, so uh, check out there for more information. I think uh, Isaac should disclaimer that it's four days until Election Day. Um, so if you go to follow him on Twitter, just be aware that it's four days until election. <laughs> I, I have a highly political Twitter stream, but none of that is in the packed Facebook group yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So um, let's start it, uh, and I'll toss this one out to either of you. Um, when you're playtesting, uh, do you have anchors that you work off of? Like design anchors. So, okay, so let's just talk for a second about design anchors. Is that a concept that folks are familiar with? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of design anchors. Excellent, we should say what they are. (laughs) Okay, so um, I work with a co-designer. His name is Matt Loomis. He's a wonderful person who's really, really irritating to work with. We (laughs) always fight. Um, But the way that we handle that is when we 
first start working on a design, we try and create a design anchor, which is a vision statement or a capturing of something essential about the design that we want the final product to have. And the reason that's important is because as we iterate, there are a lot of possible branches, right? There are a lot of paths you can go down, and some might take you quite far away from your core idea. So knowing up front what that core idea is, is important. So I'll give you an example. I have a game uh, about the country I grew up in, Israel. One of my design anchors for this game is no matter what we do to the mechanisms, people are going to look at a map of this country. That is important to me to have as a product of the game, so that is one of the design anchors in the game. I'll pass off to Jen, maybe you want to build on that. Uh, yes, I also am part of a design group, uh, and equally, uh, as much as I love being a part of a design group, there are struggles and frustrations and loud mixed conversation levels um, around design. So it is important to um, be clear about what that anchor is, and I, I guess you're, like, do you design around it slash playtest around it? Like, I guess like, sort of those, those two things flow together. Um, but when we say we're doing a design anchor, what we mean is like having this core idea and remembering, and what, how much of that do you end up bringing to the table when you're asking people to play it? Like, how much of that are you telling people versus how much are you just seeing what the response is, if it's naturally there, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, for me, um, like I first heard, my first inkling of the term, Kevin Nunn um, talked about something that he learned off the Critical Hits show off of YouTube uh, called, uh, it, it, this was a concept called core engagement, where he said, okay, your game has one thing uh, at its core that is going to engage the audience, that's going to engage its players. Like, if it's a word game, this game is going to be about players coming up with really good words. If it's a bluffing game, the game's going to be about uh, trying to deceive your opponents. If it's a strategy game, it's going to be about outthinking your opponents. And if you muddle all those things together, uh, what you have is a mess. And having these design anchors helps prevent that. Like, if you have, say, a memory game, and somebody says, would it be great if you do the strategy thing? You could say, okay, yes, but I want this to be a memory game, and if we start putting a, a strategy element into it, that could muddy the waters. I'm not saying it can't work, but it would be the kind of thing that you would at least know you'd be taking a risk if you took that on. So one thing I wanted to ask both of you, uh, are there ever times where you abandon your design anchor? Like you find a new anchor and you abandon the old one? All of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially, again, maybe that happens more because um, there are so many different voices in uh, my design as a part of my design process. But yes, it happens often and frequently. And we've had to learn to honestly welcome it. Like that's that's something that's really easy to resist that temptation. Be like, no, we wanted to make a game about this. We're going to make a game. I'm, I promise you can waste a lot of time sticking to one specific core idea, thinking that that's what your game, once you set out to make a game, has to be about. You ever feel like the game whisperer? Like you're trying to figure out what the game <laughs> wants to be? Yes, if I was psychic, I feel like this would be way easier. <laughs> well, I, I want to take it to playtesting and mm -hmm. think about when you come into a playtest and you have a design anchor, you say this game is about something, and then you go to the playtest and you find out that that's not what people are having fun with, right? That's where it's most challenging because there, I think that probably any design anchor you could pick could lead somewhere along the line to a fun game. And so the question to you after you finish a playtest and you say, hmm, the game seems to want to go there, but I really wanted it to be this. Right? I've got a trick-taking memory game, and everyone likes the trick-taking, and nobody likes the memory. What am I going to do with that? Well, it's really back to you. What do you want out of this? 
you could follow the fun. There are designers, and I tend to, I think, fall into this category of I follow the fun because I want to make games, and I have less, um, I'm less tied to exactly what they need to be. But every now and again, I have the I want to make this kind of game, and I've been chasing a reverse cards Hanabi style competitive game for five years now. <laughs> I haven't landed it yet. One day I will. So what do you do in that case? Do you fork your designs and say, okay, I'm going to pull this one off, peel this one off, and keep on working on what, what, what it wants to be, but now i got this idea that I want to return to? It's different now than it was four years ago. Um, and I say that because I started designing more seriously about four years ago, and it was a lot easier, easier to fork a design then mm -hmm. because you had more capacity. You hadn't yet filled your pipeline with what stuff you're working on. These days, for every idea that I'm working on, there's... 20 I'm not. Mm. And so a lot of times when a design starts to fork, I'll go back and say, okay, am I still as excited about this idea or would I rather work on one of these others that, you know, you got the ideas themselves have to compete for time and space. So yeah, it changes. Well, I'll throw a question at, yeah. at both of you. Um, in terms of designing around these core ideas versus designing uh, like a theme versus these ideas, and I, I, you do some teaching, yeah. somebody write as well, we, and uh, you, you do as well, right? So. Um, I also teach and uh, some game design, and I teach really young kids, and I focus. I will focus them down the theme path before mechanics. But when it comes to playtesting, and that being an, that is their anchor most of the time, it's that mechanic. But what about like pulling theme um, out of a playtest completely, and just saying you're going to focus in on one specific uh, uh, mechanic exclusively? Like, how confident do you feel doing that? Well, I think this ties into something I wanted to talk about, uh, about the stages of playtesting. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can move on to oh, that okay. subject, uh, if you're both okay with it. Because yep. uh, I have these very defined state, well, not, I wouldn't say they're rigidly defined, but they're well defined enough that I recognize where each game is. And for me, knowing where the game is in its stage of playtest is immensely valuable in understanding what I'm looking for from this playtest. Because some, I forgot, someone on Twitter, it may have been Eric Lang, uh, was writing about how your playtests, when your playtest, it was Ignacy, it was Ignacy, he was saying when you're playtesting, you're working. You're not playing a game, you're working. And the playtest isn't just, hey, let's have fun playing this thing I came up with. It's, I have specific questions that I need answers for. So I'm going to reveal my, so I'm going to talk for a little bit, I'm going to be a little it, bit of a it. narcissistic hog for a little bit, and I'll talk about my stages and we'll compare it to uh, both of your stages. Let's do that, but let's, before we do that, just ask a quick question. So how many of you view your playtesting in different stages? Like do you, just by a show of hands, do you feel like you're staged out in your playtesting? Um, how many of you have used or, or are aware of the terms like alpha playtest or beta stage, anything like that? Okay, so just to, let's be attentive to making sure that we take everyone with us as sure. we talk about stages. I, well, just to clarify, there were some who did not say they view them in stages. Is there a specific way that you do view your process really quick, like that differs from stages, if we're going to talk about it from a stage perspective? It's a little more instinctual and amorphic. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. I mean, I definitely know, like, this is a really rough beta or alpha, but in terms of, like, anything more concrete than that, it's sort of just what makes sense for the game. Yeah. yeah. And you and I think are more similar. We'll talk a little bit yeah. about that. And game design is creative, so there's always going to be a gut to it. You're never going to reduce it to a series of um, analytical um, statements. Procedural. Procedural right. stuff, at least not until the singularity. Um, you had a one, uh, so I work on freeform LARPs, and I'm working on a tabletop. And, and for me, like with freeform LARPs, like, I have to write out the entire thing and have it like mostly complete for the moment in my head, um, and I can't like do a partial of that because it just doesn't work out for me. But with tabletop, it's a lot easier. It's like, 
okay, this is really rough, mm -hmm. but here's the uh, mm -hmm. general idea I'm going to start with first. Yeah, we should have started with the disclaimer, and I have this in the notes, my notes, and I totally missed it, is that um, the three of us um, are mostly familiar with the board game world, and we had a fourth person who was a tabletop RPG designer who sadly had to drop out at the last moment. Uh, so um, our experiences in board games, our feedback might be okay for LARPs, but I can't guarantee it. So... Um, and for role-playing games, again, it might be good, but since we lost our RPG panelist, um, you know, grain of salt for there. So hopefully it, that doesn't waste anybody's time. Um, so let me talk about my, um, my stages, and hopefully this helps people. I start with, with early play testing, like this is obviously after the scribbles of the notebooks, and I'm ready to sit down and get this thing on the table. I'll play it solo. So I'll print it out on sheets of paper, no cardstock, no graphic design whatsoever. This thing is going to look absolutely ugly because I'm going to go through maybe a third of the game and then throw it out. Because like Isaac was saying before, I might have made a trick-taking memory game and the solo test will be like, wow, this memory part isn't working, but this trick-taking game has some potential. So I'll keep the trick-taking part and throw out the memory part. At this point, I'm working completely in ball strokes. I'm simply looking, Isaac mentioned finding the fun. You know, that's a good way to look at it. Just very broad strokes. That what does this game want to be? Where's the engagement for this game? Where's the entry points? What do players enjoy in this game? And I'm iterating as fast as I can. I'm trying to remove any blockers that I would have for fast iteration. So like no graphic design, make this printed out on regular cards, like standard aerial font or whatever the program gives me, I take it. Uh, and it, I don't care that it looks ugly because I'm the only one who's ever gonna see it. Quick aside, I studied creative writing in college and there was a student that I took writing with who was amazing and he had a rule I, we only ever saw his second draft or later. We never saw his first drafts. He did not allow anyone to see his first draft. And that, that was his way of getting around writer's block, is that, look, I'm just gonna get this out on the page, nobody's ever gonna see it. And that's a kind of nice way of doing uh, solo play testing. Now there's some designs that you'll never be able to solo play test. You've got like a simultaneous game, that's gonna be tricky to solo test. You've got a game that has a great deal of Yomi in it, where you have to read somebody else's mind in a way that's going to be tricky to do but a lot of games you can get away with it so at some point i'm reasonably sure that there's something interesting in here and that at that point i print it out in cardstock frankly i don't i still don't spend a lot of time on graphic design we're going to talk about that in a moment and i go to alpha test so i bring it to my friends who are also game designers <coughs> and we beat it up and again we only play a few rounds and chances are it's still very very rough um, it's totally unbalanced. That's okay. I don't care about balance right now. I just care that somebody else is playing this and they find a, some potential in it. Um, and that's alpha, alpha testing. Again, totally rough. Not expected to complete a full game, uh, but looking for uh, a proof concept. Um, at some point, this starts smoothing out and smoothing out. We start finishing complete games. Strategies start to emerge. Hopefully we start nurturing them more. I start looking at balance and we proceed to beta testing. So at this point, the game is at least interesting. You know, there's, there's a game that we can start and we can finish and we can talk about, and it may not be totally rough, it's totally there, it may still be rough, but at least it works, it's not obviously broken. Um, Around this point, I feel comfortable taking it out of my game design group and bringing it to people who are regular gamers, like regular gaming groups. Up until now, I don't want to bring it to regular game groups because they will never ever want to play a game with me again. 
Um, so at this point, uh, the graphic design is going to look a lot more presentable. The game's going to look a little more attractive. Um, I'm going to invest time in making the game look good. And at this point, I'm look, looking at balance and as I keep playing from here, hopefully the game will hit its aha moment and people will start saying, oh, can we play that again? And that's when I know I'm really on the road to something. Um, there's one more step which is interesting, which I call gamma testing. At this point, the game is 95% done. I'm looking for graphic design exclusively. I'm looking for typos. I'm blind testing the rule book. I self-publish my games, so this is really important for me because there's not gonna be a publisher to fix this for me. But if you are pitching your games, uh, somebody else may do the gamma testing for you. But be warned, even if you pitch your games, somebody may not do the gamma testing for you. You really don't know, so that depends on your publisher. I just spoke a whole gr a great deal, so I'm curious to know what you think if you are similar or different. Well, Either of you. So, I mean, I, I actually want to maybe ask the audience a little bit before, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that we have some differences to share, but I kind of want to ask you guys, uh, what's going to help you in this panel? What are questions that you're hoping we attend to? We've sort of sketched out some very broad ideas about why you play test, we've given you a model for how you play test. What, what are you hoping to learn here? What is challenging you right now in this? And maybe in our reflections on how Jen and I differ in playtesting, we'll be able to address some of that. So maybe could we just even go around the, the room, everyone just say their name and one thing that you're hoping to hear some, some feedback on in, in this panel? Uh, John Atwood, and um, maybe uh, what I find really interesting is the process of presenting a game. Certain people love it, certain people have issues with it. Um, but a lot of people have ideas about it, <laughs> and and I, I, I high tested a game last year. I'm going to high test it again here, and I got some great feedback. I got other feedback that pushed me off in other directions. That you know, it's amazing. It's taken me on a long journey. None of those ideas worked mm -hmm. as they were presented, but. Yep. Um, I don't know, maybe just, but there's, just no, you manage that? there's no rule to that other than just following your gut instinct and your, you know, your own brain. <coughs> um, that would be one thing. Great. Or just even like, I don't know, I, sometimes I feel like I struggle with just, you forget that there's actually a presentation, like you actually have to say like, you know, make people excited from the moment they see it, like, you know, just be coherent in describing it. But again, that's sort of a no-brainer in terms of what needs to be done. But no, no, there are no no-brainers here. They're all brainers. <laughs> Every single one of them. Thank you, John. Yeah. Um, my name's Eric Myers. Um, I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about how to effectively test for balance. There's a lot of mm -hmm. numbers on your cards, how to make sure that you know, it's balanced effectively. Great one. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Uh, Scott, um, I've actually got games that are in sort of all three of those different stages mm -hmm. this weekend. Um, more interested in nuts and bolts of the actual play test itself. Can you, can you say just one more sentence about that? Um, so just, you know, actually how to, how to start that, that like test Like facilitating off. it from introduction to during the post. Exactly. Right, are you asking like what you do during the play test or? Okay, yeah. yeah, I'm getting a sense for it. Okay, great, thank you. Great question. Hi, Jeff. Um, Think a lot about the iteration process. Like, how much do you change between play tests? Do you change small amounts? Do you do massive changes? And how you determine what level of iteration of changes need between iterations? Perfect. Great question. Uh, hi, my name is Roscoe. <clears throat> I think the biggest challenge I tend to have is more at the beta level when it's a public play test, and it's not necessarily other designers. Um, you have a goal. You're trying to test a certain thing or a mechanic or part of the game, and 
I didn't know if you guys had any tips or tricks to try to like, you can observe the people, but sometimes they're like, so what part did you like? And they're very non-committal or they're not very, um, maybe they don't know how to express exactly what they did or didn't like or what didn't work. Or if there's any way to kind of like extract that information besides just kind of observing, like they seem engaged and it really turning out or, or whatever. Um, sometimes with the public, that's the harder thing for me to like get some useful feedback out of people. Great. Travis and I from, uh, we have a group of designers that meets every week. The problem is every designer has at least three games that they're currently working on. <laughs> so it's how to effectively use our weekly playtesting time to make sure that we're getting more things in and uh, getting more public involvement. Great. Yeah, that's a real challenge. I'm Ben Beagle. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all the answers, so you're going to take that side of the room? And I have the <laughs> <and> answers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I'm interested in like how to articulate like what I need as a designer like from my playtesters. Like, um, just like asking like what things that I, I want them to look out for and like the most effective way to do that. Great. Um, Emily Escobar and I'm here just to absorb from you guys because I think I went about this all, all wrong from the get-go, like so that I would have used your advice. Well, if, if you did it, you did it right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's not a great point. Not is the wrong way. Yeah, And also blind playtesting, um, if you're getting to that point, like what what should you really be looking out for to try to kind of like find the holes of um, what needs to be kind of done to bring it all together and finish it? I, I think that's a great point, but what point do you like just Interject. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is really hard not to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awful. Uh, okay, so it's my turn. Um, I'm Mariam Emmett, and I sort of am more into D and D five E, and I guess figuring out how to get out of GM mode and more into sort of design workshop, especially. Great question. And how do I not basically end up, because um, the games I'm bringing to Metatopia, I've already playtested the same scenario multiple times prior to this. How do I make sure it's not essentially raw data and actually, like, I guess, focus and continue to move forward mm -hmm. with each playtest? Excellent. Cool. So Isaac, um, since you asked the question, I want to give you the reins here. Okay. Well, so what I was thinking was... Um, Jen, is there a question, or maybe there are a couple that are linked here, is there one or two that you feel like you want to take the first swing at, or do you want me to go first? I'm, I'm happy to go. Um, do we want to go through the list? Yeah, we can just, go, we we can can just, just like do the thing. I kind of went out of order, so I'll jump in as needed. <laughs> okay, so, so... I don't know if that's... If you want to do yeah, yeah, sure, 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 sure. Well, I think some of them are connected, but let's... Yes, yes. definitely they are. Um, so let's start here. Um, so... Uh, I want to talk about um, how do you decide what to change between playtests? This was Jeff's question originally. Um, and uh, it, it touches on a million things. It touches on what stage you're on, it touches on what you want to get out of it, etc. Um, what uh, My design process is quite different from Gil's in the sense that I don't put a, uh, a game on the table uh, for playtesting until you can uh, what I call take off and land, right? So you can play a whole game. Everyone gets in, plane takes off and you don't crash in the middle, the game doesn't break apart. Or at least that's the goal. And I, I don't think I'm putting a game on the table that will crash. 
And the reason for that really is, is to me, the issue of what am I testing for and what do I feel like I can sense in a play test. When a game is broken, for me, it's hard for me to tell what's working and what's not because I, as a player, struggle to know what I'm motivated to do, what my incentives are, and so forth. So I want a game to be whole. And so I'm actually, because of that, much less afraid to make wild changes from playtest to playtest. I am not at the place where I'm iterating on this one thing, and if I just change that, I will make enormous changes. I'll rip out whole mechanisms, I'll put in, there, there didn't used to be a deck, now there is, it used to, you know, I, I, I talk about a, a game that I made that was a, um, uh, a game, a deduction game about Sherlock Holmes that became a Space Invaders game, an arcade style game. <laughs> so my answer to that is, go as far as your creativity demands that you go, because there's no other option, like not testing is the other option, right? So I don't mind making big changes. I know there are some designers who say that you shouldn't change too much from one test to another, because mm -hmm. emerging com complexity will hide um, the, the different, um, like the, what will mask the different changes. Right, you um, change one little thing yeah. and who knows how that, um, yeah. the effects of that. And my feeling is, my, this is just a, a strategy for dealing with the realities of designing games is, I'm not going to go down every branch. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not exploring the the, the, the space that that way. So I'm going to trust my instincts and go down the branches that seem really interesting. And hopefully I'll come out of that with a really interesting game. Late stage, you start doing more of that shaving down and that mm -hmm. perfecting. But I don't mind having missed a great game along the way because the game that I landed on is the great game that yeah. I wanted to make. Yeah, that's that's my feeling, and that's that's much more about managing my internals than it is about finding the best game, maybe. Yeah. Now, I'm lucky that I have a really good playtest group full of designers who know the process. So we'll do something we call Calvin Balling, where we take an early design and we'll say, okay, now this is this. What's the victory condition? Oh, we'll find out. You know, we'll only play a couple of rounds, but I generally want to incentivize you to do this. So we're okay with sketches because we've all been there. We're, we're all okay doing that. And then as we play, we're like, oh, this is how you should be rewarded. This is what you should do. And that guides us from playtest to playtest. It helps to have those design anchors in place to say, I want this game to roughly do this, to feel like that. Uh, but there's also an element of, like I said to Jen before, the game whisperer. Um, my friend Daniel keeps on wanting to make like a heavy Lacerda style game and he keeps on popping out these like 60 minute um, real delicious games but you know he wants to make like a two hour brain burner and the games just don't want to be two hour brain burners <laughs> which happens you know sometimes the game tells you no this is what I want to be and you gotta listen. Jen what do you have? Uh, yeah I you know to your point I'm, I'm definitely the type of person that wants to take small incremental steps and I'm I, I like to think of myself as the voice of reason in my group when I say those things because oftentimes um, the, the danger when you think about broad strokes is that um, they stay in your head and they never get out onto paper and they never actually become changes in the game. So um, the benefit of iterating in small steps is that um, they're, they're more manageable and it's like digesting anything, any kind of content when it's, when it's small, then it's really easy to reproduce and just get back to the table because ultimately what's important is playing again. Uh, sometimes, and it just depends on like how often you've experienced this in design, um, what, what you'll know to change if you're going to make large, um, these, these sort of large broader strokes changes, um, whether or not two things will interact with each other is up to you to understand what your game is going to do. 
um, and and know that like I can make these two separate changes and I would be able to like manage um, seeing what those two changes do and how they impact the game versus changing two things that might be trying to correct the same problem in a game. Yeah. So I want to take us from here to the next one, and I'm going to ask us each to really just give one idea for this. So try and limit ourselves to one solid idea. And this is in response to Roscoe and to, to Travis um, talking about. Um, so, so Travis was talking about designers and the volume of playtesting that they need because they've got this group where everyone's got ideas, and how do you make effective use of the time? And Roscoe is coming at it from the opposite perspective of saying. I've got non-designers, and how do I get what I need out of them? Both of these, to my mind, are questions of framing, of what do I want to get out of the playtest. So for each of you, how do you, in, in one or two sentences, what are you trying to get out of a playtest? How do you focus and make sure that even if you only have the opportunity to take two turns for your playtest, how do you get what you need out of it? You first, John. Oh, really? I was going to say you first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first, then. Um, so I... Is, as part of the NYC playtest group, we have a few policies. Uh, one of the policies is we all sign in um, with our name, our game, the length of the game, and the number of players we need. And um, if we're playing on a weeknight, we have less time, and we tell our designers, try to keep your playtest to one hour or less, otherwise try to keep your game to two hours or less. We play, everybody gets their game on the table once in order that you showed up. So if you showed up late, you may not get your game on the table. Once everybody's got their first game on the table, then we start going through second game on the table, and we don't serpentine. It again goes to the first person who showed up, and then on from there. But we allow wiggle room. There are times when we're like, okay, well, um, I'm going to wait on my play test because I really want four players, and there's only three now, so we're, we're going to hold off a bit. So it's not super strict, but it's a guideline. And having some formal rules like that, I think, really helps. Um, when, when you've got a bunch of people bringing their own designs. And also knowing that... Those are your two sentences. I'm going to go. Okay. <laughs> have to write off. Uh, yeah, as boring as it might sound, writing agendas um, is really effective for me. It depends on what type of learner you are. Um, but coming to the table with predetermined um, goals in mind are probably the best way, the best hope you have of like accomplishing some of the things that you want to. I, I have a faith-based approach, which is... <laughs> While I know what I think I want out of a playtest, what I really want is to get to the point where players have something to say. And once they've reached that point, we full, I, I very rarely sometimes complete those kinds of playtests. I'm much more interested in you playing two turns and saying something to me than playing the whole game and forgetting what you found two turns ago. Especially for non-designers, by the way. Designers usually write a note, right, and then they'll be able to recover it, but with non-designers, compress it. They don't need to play the whole game. Or just tell them to take notes before the playtest starts. I think uh, open, to open that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think to Roscoe's question also, we should mention the Matt Leacock technique, mm -hmm. which is really useful. That he's he swears by it now, and he he will never not do it anymore. Which is to film playtests. You know, don't say anything. Just film the playtest and watch their body language. You know, they um, when uh, Matt and Rob were testing Pandemic Legacy, they would film each playtest. They play it back at one point five speed, and they would take notes on what they saw, the body language, because uh, to them, the body language, the way people talked, uh, that spoke a lot more to uh, the playtesters, what the playtesters thought of the game, than the actual feedback they verbalized later on. There was an episode of Onboard Games recently where we talked to John Brieger. John mm -hmm. comes out of Apple and um, uh, retail store design, uh, and he uh, spoke a lot about 
how other industries collect feedback in how the creative industries collect feedback. And it's very, very different from us in that they're not expecting the feedback to guide the design. The difference is that they're looking at how people interact with the, the product and then they're confirming what they think they observed in the post-game conversation. They're not actually looking, so in other words, the difference is, I saw that people were bored at a certain time. I saw that they struggled to understand some mechanism. In the after, I'm not asking them to solve that problem. What I'm asking is, I saw that at that moment you were kind of struggling. Can you tell me what you were thinking at that time? So I want to get more color on the experience itself, not what do you think I should do about that or how would you like it to be different? Um, and that I think is super valuable because players are super good at trying to solve problems and super bad at telling you why it hurts. That reminds me, there is an A-list uh, board game designer who now runs play tests by saying, give me problems, not solutions. Like, don't tell me what I should do, just tell me what you found was wrong and I'll find the solution. Because um, I think both of us have been in this position where players are like, well, you should have this, you should do this, and you ask why, and they're like, oh well, this part isn't interesting to me. And then you, then you say, oh, well I could just do, th like for example, I remember once in a test of the networks, um, I made a change that made the economy too loose. And I got a ton of suggestions of, I should be able to buy this stuff. There should be these things in the game. Like, I should be able to buy these really expensive endgame cards. And I fixed the problem by retightening the economy again. You know, instead of adding new mechanisms, I just made money more scarce, and that made money meaningful. Because that's what playtesters were saying. They weren't saying, I want to buy new stuff. They were saying, money's not meaningful enough. So um, that's what this designer was talking about, playtesters giving him... Um, solutions instead of problems. Yeah, sometimes people just need um, permission uh, when they come to sit down at a, at a play test. It's oftentimes, if they're not familiar with play testing, especially if you're putting it in front of like new, newer gamers or casual gamers, they just need to know that it's okay to say those things because they might feel a little uncertain of um, what they're there for. Yeah, and we've kind of naturally segued into Ezekiel and Emily's questions about how to articulate what you need from designers uh, and blind testing and what to look for and when to interject. Um, the most common question I ask when uh, doing playtesting is what are you hoping this suggestion will solve, right? Because the very common thing that you get from uh, players when they play is suggestions, right? They don't tell you I didn't like this part. I didn't like this is a hard thing to say socially, mm -hmm. right? So what they'll tell you is what if you, right? What if you give me some endgame cards to buy and, and being able to turn around and say, oh, that sounds like a really interesting idea. What problem do you think that will solve for you helps to diagnose that question. In terms of in-game interjection, I'll say that really, 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 as much as possible, try and make every blind play test, to make, make every play test like a blind play test. So much so that I will even walk away from the table once players don't have questions about how to play anymore. Not for a long time, but just to get a soda, just to talk to someone for two minutes. Yes, I'm missing out on some of what's happening, but the signal to players is very clear. Play the game. Don't look to me. I'm not, you know, and that's super what I want because, you know, it's, it's the observer principle, right? Like your, your existence there changes the experience and you're designing an experience. So you, how do you not um, ruin it or change it into something that it's not? Don't interject. That's my approach. Yeah. Try not to interject. I'll, I'll just reinforce if you are, again, a part of a group that, um, and you know that somebody has a hard time not interjecting in that type of play test, ask them not to be a part of the play test. Um, we do have those members of our group, and it's not offensive. It's just 
when we know we need something like that done, um, they need to walk away um, so that that doesn't happen. If we're if we're going to be there, right? Blind playtest could be that the game isn't even near you; it's in a different state sometimes. Um, and I've participated in those types of tests and asked for those to happen. So that's totally different experience. Um, but if you are in the room, yeah, you need to know yourself well enough to to um, either be able to stay silent or to remove yourself. I have a really bad habit. <laughs> I have a lot of really bad habits. One of my really bad habits is during a play test, I will be the butler and do things on the board because that's what I do with board games anyway. When I play any game, I like to do the upkeep. I shouldn't do that as much as I do in one of my play tests. I should let the players do it because they will tell me, I found this fiddly, I found this a little too confusing. Whereas if I'm doing that, that obscures that bit of feedback. So that's a really bad habit I have that I'm trying to uh, kick myself of. You're just preparing them to play the app version. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm the CPU. I'm the compiler. Copy of you that comes with everything. Exactly. Well, yeah. I, I, you know, I think this also touches on Mario's question about how to kind of get out of GM mode. Yeah. Is step back from the table. Yeah. Right. Um, I will tell you that I I'm I'm the, the the pitch person in my team as well, and a lot of what I do. Is, you know, I, I probably pitch as much as I play test, which is to say, I pitch an awful lot, and I play test not nearly enough. Um, but when you're pitching, you often butler because you're trying to focus the publisher on the core of the game and what's interesting, and not get them caught up in, oh, you didn't move the turn marker, and no, it's the sun phase, not the moon phase. You know, like, so you take care of all that stuff. You can't do that in a play test because that's the stuff that makes your game not as good. All that, all those tentacles that are hanging off of it, all those little bits that somebody has to know and manage. You want to limit that. You want to minimize that. If you're doing it, you'll never notice mm -hmm. how hard it is to do when you're not there. Mm -hmm. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pull out of that. Anyone want to add to that, or should we? I, I just want to mention really quickly about blind testing. Um, be careful not blind test too early because a blind test will generally, 70, over 75% of a blind test is going to be a, a test of your rule book. Like the syntax of the rule book, how it reads, whether it's clear, the diagrams, etc, etc. Um, and oh, if your game still has a lot of changes to be made, um, I'd say don't jump to formal blind tests until you're there. Um, you know, being able to step back and let the players manage the test for themselves while still occasionally interjecting, that's not a bad thing. But a formal blind test where you don't say anything and you just take notes and watch them struggle with the rule book, uh, that is a very late stage thing. That's gamma stage for me. Yeah, and I'll say for me, almost every test is a blind test after the rules. So I'll teach the rules because I'm not yet testing the rule book. And then I will, I don't always, this is an ideal I strive for, um, <laughs> but then I really want to be able to step back and watch it played. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I want to I go to John's question to, to some extent, um, a few people, uh, ZK will also mention this, but the question of, of sort of how do you frame a play test to get what you want out of it, and to what extent should you frame a play test, um, and, and, and does that help or does it hurt? Um, so, Gil, why don't you take the first swing at that? Yeah, I, so one thing I almost always find myself saying is we're not testing the graphic design. I'm not taking feedback on graphic design. And anybody who's seen my prototypes will know why. 
I'm a horrible graphic designer. Um, one and how much feedback do you still get on graphic design despite that? Not much. Not much. Okay. Not much. I I'm, still get I, a ton. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it depends. The, the newer, the, then I do a lot of my testing with my group, and they know me, you know, at this point. Uh, although one member of my group threatened to not play the game at all unless he could help me with the graphic design. Uh, because <laughs> I if, know that member. Yeah, yeah, because he, he was not having it. His eyes were just about bleeding. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think articulating at the beginning of the test what you want, the kind of feedback you're looking for is really important. Uh, like saying this is an early test, um, we, th we're probably going to touch on this because we had a question about balance, mm -hmm. uh, but early on I say I'm not looking for balance feedback. This game's going to be totally imbalanced and that's okay because I, I want to look more uh, at the broad strokes of the game. Or maybe later on I'm like, okay, break this game. You know, uh, I think setting up those rules early is really useful. Great, Jen. Uh, yes, I, I guess uh, we go back and forth a little bit on on this. Uh, yes, having a framework is important, um, but our playtests are largely experiential based. Um, throwing the game in front of people, like focusing on that that anchor with when describing something and saying we're testing for uh, like this is the theme here, let's play it and see what happens. And we know internally that what we're looking for, that we have just changed three things and, and we're looking for the experience had around those three changes. Um, but so like framing it, I, maybe we actually aren't the most successful when, when we frame the feedback that we desire, but I know there's like, there's pros and cons to asking for um, like specific things up front and telling people I want you to play to a, a certain way versus letting those be emergent. Um, I would prefer, like for me personally, I prefer to let things be emergent because if they're not obvious or they don't come out, especially if a person is a multiple time play tester, um, then they are not actually emergent and then there's a problem there. So that, that ties back into um, using observation for feedback uh, versus like asking for somebody to specifically think about something. Um, but I, I know there's a lot of different perspectives on that. And for you, emergent in this context means that uh, they're going to volunteer. Like a, a, emergent, uh, uh, like play styles or, or strategies, etc. Got it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I almost never. I used to. I almost never frame uh, a playtest in that way anymore. Hmm. Um, so it's a couple of things. One is I'm clear about what I'm testing. So I had a game where. Um, you know, you had a card economy, you're drawing cards, you're discarding cards, you're playing cards, and I was making a major change to that game where you would refill your hand to a set number at the end of every turn, which substantially changes the dynamics of how cards come in and out. Um, I knew that I was testing for that, but if I had to explain what, what feedback I wanted around that, I'd be coloring how they felt, right? Like, because. Like do you feel tight on cards? Then. Do you feel loose on right. cards? Do you feel powerful? Do you mm -hmm. feel, you know, all those things. So I was, I, I couldn't think of a question to ask or a way to explain what I was testing um, without sort of giving away the plot. Um, mm -hmm. So, and, and that's become more and more my approach is, I'm not gonna frame this. Um, and if I need very specific feedback, I go back to, you know, a truism of play testing, which is, you know, double or half, right? If you really need a test if something works, make it twice as powerful or make it half as we, you know. Submire. Yeah, just go real strong into it and then you don't need framing. The, the design will show you what you're looking for. 
Yeah, I, I think you can still frame, you just frame in a very general sense. You let them know that you're not at the very beginning, but you're not at the very end either. Mm -hmm. Because I've done that also. I've been, you know, I've been like, okay, I changed something, but I'm not going to tell you what, and just go ahead and play the game. So I, I had an experience a couple of years ago that really shaped my thinking on this. Um, and some of you might have had a similar one, because it sounds like you often play test with different kinds of groups. Sometimes you're with designers, sometimes you're with the public, and anywhere in between. So I had a game that I was was really, really close, really, really close, and um, I just had a little bit of trouble in some of the UX and like how to teach this game and so on. And so I put it in front of a couple of designers with that intent, right? And, and they all knew that that was sort of where it was at. Another designer jumped in, and I don't know what he did or didn't hear about what we were looking for, but he played the game like it was an early stage, can you break this game? Right, and he pursued strategies that the game was quite clear were not going to work, but that he sort of pounded through to make sure, which was a useless playtest to me. It ruined the other side, right? And and and, and you know, and, and to kind of have that playtest happen, and then to talk with him about it, and he says, "Well, yeah, you know, it just didn't seem like I had a lot of control in this game." And I'm like, "Yeah, you drove through a terrible strategy that the game is not broken, right?" Yeah. <laughs> so, and it, what it what it made me realize is. However you frame something or not, the way that players play is how they want to play. So you need to bring your playtest to the right table. You're not going to control the frame. So I now know he's a great person to break games with. Because that's what he wants, that's the fun he's going to have with your game. And I'm not going to bring him certain other kinds of playtests. So that's why I've gotten away from framing. I'm framing the social circle rather than the game itself. And yeah, I think framing is still very useful. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're going to find those testers that will only test their way and not have any idea of how to test another way. That's what, but I still think framing is useful. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, can you comment on having the same person or persons play test multiple times? Because you're sort of leading into that. Yeah, it's an inevitability and it has all kinds of challenges that I haven't solved. <laughs> I mean, you know, so you play test with a pretty fixed group. I also have um, somewhat less fixed, but you know, commonly certain people will see the same game over and over again. Um, and it is challenging, uh, what, the biggest challenges I find with it are number one, players who have played before, if you made some substantial changes to rules or specifically nerfed strategies that used to work, they're anchored to it. It's real hard for them. Even designers, they're expecting something and now it's something else. It's almost like, you know, you put a piece of cheese in front of someone and it's cheddar three times and the fourth time it's Gouda. And they're like, that tastes like cheddar. And you're like, no, that's, you know, so um, I don't have an answer to that other than to be aware of it. Yeah, it depends on your group. Also, it depends on, um, <coughs> is this the kind of game that is, uh, that helps to design why, to, to test deep versus te testing wide. Like if you have a strategy game that's really intricate that begs for replayability, I think you're in a very good situation if you do that. Uh, whereas if you have, say, a legacy game, a legacy game needs to be tested wide. No, needs to be tested deep. Uh, whereas if you have other games, if you have a game that has a lot of like little weird crannies and can be broken in multiple ways, you want to test that wide because you want as many different approaches as possible. So if you have a legacy game, you might be okay with the same testers over and over again. If you, um, then again, legacy games are really, really hard to, to make and test. Uh, but some games favor having the same testers. Some games you really want uh, a wide base. I think in general, uh, bringing your game to a new audience is always going to be useful and you're always going to find stuff about it. Yeah. And, and that's why 
conventions like this, um, unpublished spiels, um, uh, any sort of mini local cons are always super valuable for that specific reason. Um, because yeah, I definitely fall to the same. I have a group of people, and it's easy to get them. They're easy yeses, right? Like the the goal is to get the game to the table, and you say they'll say yes. So you know, I'm not gonna say no. Yeah, and I, I want to follow that thread of who are the people at your playtest a little bit. Um, and managing the social dynamics. One of the conversations that we had uh, in our planning doc as we were uh, working on this session was a question about how much feedback you ask for from players and how you manage player feedback in general. Um, and um, I kind of staked out this extreme position that says, uh, and you know, it's, it's drawing from I guess the Leacock School, it basically says, the only reason that I'm engaging with players for feedback is because I want them to feel good about the time they spent, not because I am getting a lot of value in terms of the design from what they're saying. That I do it because it's fun to talk about games, it's fun to talk about your game, but for the most part, their feedback isn't helping me in my next design choice. So that's my very extreme position, and uh, the two of you, I think, took a, a, a somewhat different position, so why don't one of you stake that out? Um, yes, uh, I definitely agree that observation is really important, and I, I know, I feel like maybe you had mentioned before that, like, you sometimes struggle with being able to sort of, like, pull on feedback through observation. Um, that, that is a really strong tool to have, um, and, but sometimes you hit a wall, like, there's been multiple times where you hit a wall in design, and just being a conversation is really important to just pull through, and that sort of circles back on if you're playing with the same people over and over again, you are very likely to hit walls where you don't have solutions because you are only experiencing the same things over and over again. So especially when you're in front of people, uh, like the counter to that is that if, if you know internally you have a wall, even if you're not gonna pull on the solutions that people are putting in front of you, if you're building that dialogue with playtesters and feedback, that that conversation in itself might spark ideas that you can write down or, or like think about for, for the future. Um, just like what Gil had mentioned, where one person giving him feedback about needing more things to buy didn't result in him putting more things to buy, it resulted in a totally different thing. But those conversations then can't, yes, the, maybe it is a little bit of a feel-good thing, but for me personally, those conversations help build that, like give me those ideas. I wouldn't be able to get there without some people telling like having a dialogue. Yeah. yeah, that's a great perspective. Yeah, you're in a super position of needing to listen to your playtesters and needing to ignore your playtesters. And knowing when to do one and when to do the other, that's all part of the craft of it. Uh, I, um, I find that the more you playtest in general, the better you get at it. And the better you get at it, like, I, not to sound arrogant, but I'm at the point where generally, if something's going wrong, I can figure it out without asking the playtesters. Like, if the game is dragging or taking too long, I can tell that it's dragging without having to ask the players. If there's a de degenerate strategy, I can see it happening without the players having to tell me. Uh, but that's not always the case. Sometimes they have to point it out to me, or sometimes they're actually having a good time, but they seem like they're, they're dragging. So, um, for me, I still ask, and their perspective is sometimes valuable, and sometimes, um, you know, I, I can tell that they're just being polite. Uh, it's not going for me. It's not an absolute thing. It's going to depend on the playtesters and the playtest. So I remember watching Project Runway, uh, which is a reality show about uh, designers, uh, fashion designers, and um, in the judging phase, um, Michael Kors, a noted fashion designer, was commenting on one of the uh, com uh, contestants and said, "I'm not sure that her taste level is high enough." 
And that really resonated with me as a tool that you have as a designer. So what he meant by that is, this is a person who's very competent at creating things, but maybe doesn't quite see some of the small flaws or <coughs> missing some of the um, you know, aesthetic sense to take this to the next level. And that's not something that you can't work on, as it turns out. You can elevate your taste level. And it's something that I realized I was struggling with uh, you know, earlier, is that I would ignore certain kinds of feedback from playtesters. And I'd be like, ah, but that's not such a big deal. Or I'd make excuses as to why that design feedback wasn't really relevant. Yeah, it's a little AP, but that person probably doesn't know games that well. That's why they were taking so long to, you know, that's why analysis paralysis AP. Um, you know, and, and none of that's true, right? You're, the one thing that is true is that your playtesters' feelings did happen to them, right? They totally happened to them out of the stimulus of the game that they were playing. So raising your taste level in some ways is play great games. Play games that, like, if you're struggling with a certain aspect of your game, play games that are great at that thing. So I love playing Martin Wallace games for teaching you how to uh, manage the take two actions on your turn, right? That's a classic Martin Wallace thing. You can do two things on your turn. Super elegant, tight decision. You only have two things, um, and that's a great way to experience how much you can get out of do two things on your turn. Um, I really, really, you know, I'll play any Kinesio auction game to see how you manage auctions, which can be really sprawling and take a lot of time and break down, and then you play a Kinesio game, and you're like, oh, that's how you make a great auction game. Um, so, so raising taste level is to me the, the response to user feedback, much more so than fixing this specific game. Five minute warning by the way, and um, we haven't gotten to balance yet. Yeah, so that's, I was saving that for the end, so uh, this is a good time to do it. Uh, can do, I, do you can want I just to do one? Yes, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So um, I just want to provide one caveat that uh, I thought of. If you are engaging in conversation, it's just like an easy, simple way to, to if you ask for feedback, don't be defensive. Um, right, like if you do want to engage in that conversation, you've opened up that Florida conversation. If you don't want that, that's totally fine, and you can tell preface like playtesters with that. But if you are going to open it up, it's not an opportunity for you to argue with your playtesters. It's an opportunity to listen. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you that because I'm very jealous of my time in terms of I would much rather play again than have a long conversation phase. Um, what I try and do is frame the feedback phase. So. I tell everyone, okay, we're done playing. I want to go around the table and ask everyone, what was your favorite moment in the game? Right? Just go around the table and everyone says one favorite thing. And then I ask, what's one thing you change about the game or one moment where you were disengaged? That gives players permission to say the bad thing. I know what they're going to say, and if they surprise me, I'll ask again. Because again, I'm confirming what I think is the issue. Um, and then I'll say, does anyone have anything else they want to say in a more unstructured way and give everyone in turn order an opportunity? It gets a little bit messy, then people start cross. And then, and this is the biggest trick I can give you in all of this session, say thank you and fold up the game. And that means it's over. For me, that's important because it's a way, without being rude, of reclaiming the time that then might go into lots of conversations that won't be helpful for my goal. But also, I've acknowledged the players and I've thanked them and given them the opportunity to say something. So that's my structure for getting in and out of what can be a very long recrimination space at the end of the game. Um, okay, <clears throat> let's talk about um, balance testing. So Eric's just threw it out there. How do you balance test? Gil, how do you balance test? I think you balance <coughs> test not early in the design because I think you want to find where the game is first before you go out and balance. I played games that were perfectly balanced and incredibly dull. 
uh, and you don't want that because the um, the exciting part is the hard bit. Balance is, rel is I don't want to say easy, but relatively easier than that. Uh, but assuming you're, you're at that stage, I think a mathematical model is often very useful. Um, a lot of times you can convert everything into points in your game, even if it's, say, a race game. You can convert to points and then just sort of figure out, okay, this card's worth three points, this card's worth ten points, the three-point card may be underpowered, the ten-point may be overpowered. Honestly, balance is a seminar in and of itself, and <coughs> not something I don't think, I don't think we can easily cover it in this time, but, um, you know, I can talk about math mathematical models after this, uh, th this panel's over. I'll just say as an exercise to all of you, <coughs> if you're interested in mathematical models, is take the following games, Century Spice Road, um, Seven Wonders, um, and um, there's one more that I'm thinking of that just escaped me. Well, let's start with those two. And, uh, oh, and, uh, and Terraforming Mars. And go to those games and figure out what each item is worth. All three of those games, thank you, are tied very tightly to a mathematical model, and you can learn exactly what each thing is worth in those games, and you'll see also where there's some variation where they, they veer off of the model. Mm -hmm. So in Century Spice Road, it's relatively easy. You'll see it's one, two, three, four. In the other two games, it's more challenging. Do that exercise, you'll know how to do it for your games. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, just the shorthand, uh, have somebody in your design team, if you are not that person who is math inclined, is just yes. Just do. I'm not that person, so I'm really happy that I do have a member of our team that is. And um, don't be afraid uh, to let gut drive what balance feels like. Feeling is does have value. Balance doesn't always have to be about numbers. There is a sense of feeling that applies uh, to balance as well. Yeah, and, and the last thing that I'll say on this, and again, it's a huge topic, is um, there are a lot of touchstones you can start from. So if you're trying to figure out how points should scale up in an engine builder, Use triangular, right? Uh, you know, the 1, 3, 6, 10, 15, 21, if you don't know what that is, look up triangular um, progressions. Uh, but um, that's that's a well-tested and um, very effective place to start. And maybe you'll need to tweak from there. But use what's out there. Um, you know, exponential scoring always goes crazy, so only mm -hmm. use it for small sets, right? So, you know, I mean, to use Seven Wonders again, right? If you get seven science cards of the same type, usually you win. Um, <laughs> so it has to be real hard to achieve, right? Um, but yeah, use the existing scales that are out there, and, uh, and, and don't try and, you know, the, the mistake is to try and create it perfectly from the get-go. Don't. Use some common things, and then yeah, fall on ones and twos. Zeros and ones, ones and twos are really, like, keep it small. Yeah, I disagree with the Meyer thing in board games. I don't think doubling and having is useful in a board game because it's just not granular enough. But we can talk about it. We can argue yeah, about it depends where. It's, yeah. Not useful for, it's not useful for balancing. Mm. It is totally not useful yeah. for balancing. Perfect. It's useful for strategy. So we'll just end on an argument. Thank you, everybody, yeah. very <laughs> much. Again, I'm Isaac Shalev. I'm Gil Hova. And I'm Jennifer Graham Mack. Please reach out to us at any time if you'd like to talk further. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. I'm giving you turn to turn out the hit you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Keep left turn.